Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. We are here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions. We dive into the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of addiction and recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. Hey friends, welcome back. I'm Jody Stevens, joined by Erica Spiegelman. She is an author, an addiction counselor, wellness specialist, motivational speaker, and she works with individuals, couples, families, with personal growth, overall wellness, and also helping people overcome their struggles with addictions and dependency, which is so awesome. I could so relate to all these things. The book that she wrote is called Rewired, a bold new approach to addiction and recovery, shows people how they can rewire their brains, change their behavior, and bring about positive change in their lives. Great stuff. Erica, thanks for making Thank time you. to be on the program. Oh, it's my honor. And I'm I'm really so excited to be here with you and uh, get to know you a little better too. So this will be fun. By the way, please share this show, Genuine Life Recovery, with anybody you know that's struggling with addiction or codependency. If you leave a review on iTunes or whatever app you're listening through, that would be awesome because that really does help. And we're on most apps, iTunes and Spotify and Amazon. And you can also listen by clicking podcasts right on my website, which is jodystevens.org, J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S.org. So Erica, where are you located? I'm in um, a little north of Los Angeles. I mean, okay. in Los Angeles County. So yeah. Awesome. And what type of, are you uh, like um, LADC or what type of addiction counselor I'm, are you? Yeah, I'm a KDAC. So um, okay. I'm a KDAC 2. So I'm a California mm -hmm. state addiction uh, drug and alcohol counselor 2, meaning, you know, it's usually if that's the highest one or you're in this field for, you know, 10 years plus. I went back to school my well, after I got sober myself. I've been sober 15 years myself Ooh. and went back to school in my late 20s and got my, you know, this this certification to become a, an addiction counselor and from UCLA and I've stayed in LA ever since then. So, yeah, and worked at different treatment centers all over Los Angeles, the bigger ones, the outpatients, uh -huh. all of them kind of teaching groups and and as a clinician doing one-on-one -on -one counseling with uh, individuals and, and their families. Oh, this is so great. I'm working on the MS and addiction counseling. Uh -huh. And so that leads to the licensed alcohol drug counseling. Um, but I'm still like I'm on class six. I think pharmacology starts. Yes. Yeah, I this like that week. One. So I'm like, yeah. oh boy. Yeah. It sounds like <laughs> so, a very similar program. Yeah. yeah. Now I have somebody to call, you know, yeah, yeah. When, when I don't know what to do. Erica, help me. I just, <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. So right? I love that. Yeah, you know, they always talk about uh, talk to your, you know, peers and, you know, all yeah. that stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so it's great to have you on. So, 15 you. years, congratulations. You are a miracle. I've Thank got 16 you. years, my husband, wow. 19. So, between the three cool. of us, that's like, you know, yeah. half a lifetime. So. Amazing. Oh, it makes, me, <laughs> yeah. makes me emotional just hearing that. It does. I know. Yeah. So, yeah. one of the things for those of you that maybe don't, kind of know in recovery, it's sort of this experience, strength, and hope. So we like to share like, where were you then? Mm -hmm. What happened? And where are you now? And that's what Erica's going to do. And the reason we do that is because a lot of times, right, people come in and they're like, nobody gets me. No one's been through what I've been through. Right. I'm all alone, <laughs> you know, and then they hear these stories and they're like, oh, wait, yeah. right. There's a lot of people that can relate. So I'd love to just start with your yeah. story 
you know, kind of that. So, so what happened before? What were you like? What happened? How did it impact, right, the people around mm-hmm. you and your life and your yeah. own emotional journey? And then kind of what that pivotal moment was or moments. <laughs> Some people yeah. have more than one to where yeah. you're like, man, I got to change. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, I don't know why this just comes up immediately. 13, this, this number of like the age, I guess. So I, I would yeah. say my journey started with drugs and alcohol around 13 years old. It was the first time I was kind of introduced to substances. Um, my mm-hmm. father, which is, you know, another story, but he, you know, he's close with him, but he, you know, drank my whole life. So I, so again, when we mm-hmm. talk about narratives, as I talk about narratives as a professional now, I see that, you know, like kind of hearing about alcohol. Oh, it's end of a, I'm so stressed. The end of the day, I'm going to get a, a glass of wine or a drink or a beer, you know? I, so I saw that growing up. So I think it was yeah. already kind of normalized in my family of origin to drink. Um, number one. So w- when I was 13 and a peer, a friend, you know, had alcohol, cigarettes, pot, whatever it was, you know, at the time yeah. it, it was, Obviously, I paused, but I definitely, you know, was curious at a young age. So I think it started then. But even at, you know, my high school years, I remember trying like hard drugs. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, I really like this. And I, and I thought the same thing with alcohol. Like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this is this. I even I even knew then, Jody. like I in, like literally the intuitive voice knew then this will be a problem. I, I knew it. And. I, you know, went to college and uh, I went to a big kind of party school, I would say, mm-hmm. in Tucson, Arizona, U of A. And I oh, studied, yeah. mm-hmm. studied literature. And I, at that point, was drinking, you know, every night. I think we went out every night. And, at that, and, and even at that point, at that young age, I was drinking before we went out, like the earliest, you know, like four or five. And then yeah. continue all night long for, for four years, five years. And then after college, I graduated and moved to New York City where that continued, the drinking and the using and going out and, you know, not taking care of myself, just the self-abuse and the betrayal, doing things I wasn't, you know, proud of and not really being able to get my life on track with the job or didn't know what I wanted. And obviously I was so, I was already like swimming, like in the, the, the depths of alcohol addiction. So um, it started very early for me, which, you know, looking back, I'm grateful for because it got so bad so fast that I was able to you know, see the negative consequences very clearly. And they were, you know, my family was very concerned. My hands were shaking all the time. I was bloated. Mm. I, you know, physically manifested all these, these symptoms like very fast. And so it was, it was noticeable. You know, there's a lot of people that could say like, no one noticed. And I was very put together. I wasn't, I was a mess and it was Mm -hmm. very obvious. I, I don't think my body metabolizes it well because I was slurring and I was, you know, like a mess. And, um, I was very depressed at the end, I would say I moved back to San Francisco where I'm from, from New York. And I was living in San Francisco in the city and again, low vibration life, you know, with a, a, a relationship with a person who was abusive and an addict himself. And then, you know, with, you know, with people that vibrating with people that you know, were addicts and, you know, nothing, it was just, everything was a very, uh, I think, um, dark time in a lot of ways. And my mom was the, the one who said like, I, I can't watch this anymore. You need help. And I denied it. And then I tried to stop on my own and I negotiated it. And then I, I yes. wasn't, wasn't able to. Yeah. So finally I went to treatment. I surrendered cause I went on a trip and I, yeah, it was like a, it was like a two week trip of my friend got married in, in Turkey actually in Europe and I came back just 
like I couldn't even function. I was sick, like physically sick all the time. If I didn't drink, it was, it was bad. So I went to treatment and, um, you know, I remember like a couple weeks before that, this is like the one incident I keep in my mind always. Cause I, to kind of feel the gratitude for my sobriety, I was sitting on this stoop in San Francisco, at like nine in the morning with a drink in my hand, shaking, smoking a cigarette, being like, God, I need help. You know, mm-hmm. please, God, help me. And I, it was like this moment I will remember forever that I actually said this. It, it felt like out loud, but I think it was in my head. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was out loud, actually. And and never. And I think that was a turning point where I actually surrendered finally and went and got help and went to treatment. Wow. Yeah. And so you were literally dependent having shakes and DTs and all that stuff. Abs- yes. Yes. It, mm. I, it, at the end, I was starting to drink in the morning. I mean, it was. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't you know, and I didn't know a way out. It was like again, I wanted a normal life. I wanted my health back. I had hobbies. I was I loved to to do so many things. I was like a musical theater my whole life, and I loved to write. And I, you know, I was very active, and, and I did every sport. I did, I, you know, I when I was young and functional, and it became so dysfunctional so fast. And I, I felt so spiritless, like everything I loved had fell, fallen by the wayside. And it was very depressing, you know, that contrast of seeing yourself like mm-hmm. a total mess, you know, and that you can't function really. And so I, I think I was ready for treatment. And, and I went and, you know, after that, I stayed sober and I came back and I moved to Los Angeles and I got my degree and I, you know, went to UCLA and I just, I started, I put myself on a routine this is the basis of my book, Rewired, with repetition, like a program, basically. I put myself on a program. I started, my brother said to me, let's run a block, like try and run a block. So I, I like walked a block, then ran a block, then walked a block. And then I, before you know it, like within a month I was running, you know, not a lot, but I was running a couple miles and it gave me such freedom and, and it's fed my spirit, it fed my, my emotional health, it fed my physical health. And I started to lose the weight. I started to feel better. And I, I would get up every morning at the same time and run and then I'd have a great breakfast and then I'd go to bed early and I created really good boundaries for myself with the people in my life. And I explained that I was sober and I explained that I'm on a healthy path. And I, my identity started to shift from seeing myself as an addict mess to, oh mm-hmm. my God, I'm a healthy woman who runs now. Oh my God, I could actually run. And I signed up for a 5K and then I signed up for a 10K and then I did a marathon, you know, and I just really rewired my brain and my life with healthy tools and boundaries and, you know, routines and self-care and reading about self-love and self-compassion and mindfulness. And I just literally put myself on this this plan and I did not deviate. And I think it's what saved my life. Yeah, that's so important. And and the other thing too is that you you'd had those hobbies, you'd had those interests, you'd had those things before. You had seen a lot of that as well. And and I think that a lot of times that saves us. Like I know for me, I started this form of escapism very early and it was mm. in music. And and mm. and some of it was the books. And while some of that stuff escapism, right? It backfired later in life. Mm -hmm. I see how like in in the family dynamics, I was kind of like the lost child, you know, if you you know how we read the family roles that people play. But I kind of look back and I think that that kind of saved me in a lot of ways, too. So some of those protective mechanisms, right, can also save us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I see like all of our personality traits we can use for Mm -hmm. positive you know, ways of living. And we can also use it as negative, you know, like being em- empathic or being, you know, super 
empathetic towards people or being a people pleaser, let's say, oh, which Lord. I definitely yeah. was, <laughs> um, you know, can be great in some ways and then it could be detrimental to our health. So it's like the way we kind of, you know, look at our, our personality traits and our roles yeah. and our narratives and, and how we can shift them. Yeah. 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 You, we, sometimes our biggest strengths are, are the biggest weakness too. It's, it's always that way. It's just crazy. Yeah. So um, your book, on, on, it's online program. Well, it's a book and it's also an online program, Rewired, Creating New Pathways. So tell me about that, how that yes, works. Re, well, Rewired, the book I wrote in 2015, um, became, you know, bestseller, which was great. And I was very grateful to get the opportunity nice. to be published. And, yeah. you know, it starts with authenticity, the chat, the first chapter, and, and then honesty. And then it goes through values, basically, um, of, of how we, you know, what, what kind of we need to look at after we put down the drink or the drug. Like now that mm-hmm. I am sober, what can I do to change my life, like a lifestyle shift, a whole soul makeover is what I kind of call it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking off the mask and learning who you are and, and making sure that all the things in your life are congruently authentic, like your relationships feel authentic, what you're doing for a living mostly feels authentic. You know, you're not, you're, you're not pretending to be someone else that will only lead you back to addiction, you know? Um, so, and that, that's hard work. I get that. And so again, we explore in my book, you know, just different chapters um, that kind of help us lead us to a place where we can establish some self-care, like learning honesty with yourself and others and evolution and healthy solitude and time management and self-care and healthy relationships and gratitude, compassion and love. Those are all the chapters. So it's a really like open-hearted, open-minded book. It's not about being hard on yourself. It's 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 really about self-acceptance and love. And I think that's the foundation to recovery. So I wrote that book and um, hopefully teaching people how to rewire their thoughts and lives with routines. And then from there, um, a workbook came, and we have a workbook that is complementary to the book. And then in 2018, I wrote The Rewired Life, which is for the general public kind of learning about rewiring and self-care and emotional awareness. So that book is out on Amazon and everywhere else. And um, that kind of I, – I explore – some of the same topics, but, you know, also technology habits, sleep habits, nutrition, movement, and how mm-hmm. we can use all of that to kind of rewire our lives as well. And that's kind of just for everyday people. Not There's no word of addiction in that book. What you're talking about, about authenticity. So for me, I had this very... I feel like a lot of times you take away the alcohol or drugs and you have a codependent. Not everybody looks at it that way, but that's how it's, I've I've seen it in my family. And so for me, once I got sober, Mm -hmm. that was one thing, but then I began to uncover that I was completely codependent. And this wasn't the, oh, enabling codependent. This was like the lack of self, the, what they call um, external locus of control and locus of control. And what that really means is that I was defined by everything outside of myself. In other words, I didn't know who I was. And so I had all this panic attacks, free floating anxiety, they call it, where it was just like, because I didn't have this internal, like, who am I? Everything was coming from the outside. And when you're defined by that, like you were talking about, you're going to have constant anxiety because those are things you can never control, right? Right. So I always think of recovery is really like coming back to ourself. Or or, or maybe we never knew who we were because especially if there's dysfunction in the family – 
you yeah. develop this kind of coping skills in these roles, but they're not based on authenticity. Right. They're based on coping, right? right? And so mm -hmm. then we get older and all of a sudden we're like, who am I? And yeah. so you're right. Like once we can work through all that stuff and things feel authentic, that's huge. That's huge. But, yeah, but how do we know that, right? How do you know, like, this This feels authentic? You know what I mean? Well, so the word authenticity in Latin means author of your own life. So that's mm. what it means. So an origin, um, the origin is really mm -hmm. what it kind of means. But, I mean, there's so many different kind of similar definitions. They all are kind of point to the same thing, which means you, you can you can create your own life. You have choices, right? And, yeah, and I think yeah. to me that was a huge shift. It was like, wow, I have a choice? Yeah, do yeah. what I want now. I'm free. I, I'm not in the shackles of addiction. I, you know, I could choose this path or I could go back to the other path. But at least mm -hmm. I have the choice. And to me, that was very empowering. So um, I think if people are figuring out what is authentic, is is like, you know, to create, you know, like create the story. What do you want your life to unfold? What do you want in the, in the depths of who you are? Do you want happiness? Yeah. Do you want, you know, success? Do you want a job? Do you want, you know, what is it like Are you artistic, creative, what fills your soul? And then I even say to my clients, I have a private practice. I have, you know, I deal with, I talk to clients every day. That's what I do mm -hmm. day to day for my job. Um, and I will say to my clients, if you don't know who you are, then let's write down who are you not? You know, like, mm. are you, you know, are you, are you a closed-minded person? I'd say, and they'll say, no, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm very open-minded. I, I really care about this issue and that issue. Oh, you care about things. So does that mean you're compassionate? Yes, I'm compassionate. So from going kind of in a conversation of what we're not comes very fast, what we are, you know, yeah. and, um, it's just kind of exploring that, oh, you know, someone will say to me, well, animals, you know, like that's what brings, me, oh, animals bring you joy. Would you want to ever work with animals? Would you ever want to adopt an animal? Would How would that look mm -hmm. like? You would actually care for something? Wow, I would, I, I would, you know. So a lot of the times we just, we're kind of stuck because we don't explore enough. We're not curious. So I always tell people to just get curious. Don't don't be hard on yourself. You don't have to figure any everything out right this second. But, you know, and, and through conversation mm -hmm. with a professional, I think, you know, a lot of things could come out. Yeah. I love that. And I love what you talked about with the choice, because there are some people like my husband, for example. I mean, mm -hmm. he's been sober 19 years, but there's yeah. more like narcissism and things on his side of the family where codependency is on mine. So we yeah. came together beautifully, but he never has a problem <laughs> making choices like he's, yeah. just, you know, but for me, it was like that. It was like I people don't understand that sometimes the struggle with addiction recovery is you really don't think you have a choice. There are people that don't believe it. Like yeah. I didn't, I, I just, I, it was almost like I was drinking beyond my will. It was almost like I, I didn't have boundaries with, with men, with sex. It was like, mm -hmm. it was like, I just couldn't say no. I didn't believe I had choices because I was so afraid of, of what I would lose, you know, love or relationship. And yeah, right. I mean, I think I, I still don't really know what that was, but, but yeah. so really believing and understanding to the point that you have a choice yeah. and you do, um, is, is so, like you said, it's so empowering. It's, well, it's so important. And yeah. then also just the, uh, then going back and looking through the emotional, uh, mental and, and spiritual self-care is something 
that's important too? What are some of those things? You know, you talked about exercise. What are some of the other self-care tips mm-hmm. that we well, can do to help in our recovery? Well, I was just going to say to you really quick though, Jody. I was going to say what it sounds like for me, what you were going through too, is like you didn't, you, you know, you weren't clear about your identity too at the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. And, and your self-worth. And I think that that's, you know, like I, and I went through the same thing. That's why I kind of relate to that as like mm-hmm. doing things I didn't know I I should say no, but I, but I identified with being kind of an addict. I'm in this little role right now. I'm, I, I, you know, my values, what I used to value are not there. This is kind of what I've accepted yeah. <laughs> myself to yeah. value now. And so that, that gave it an excuse. Anyway, it was a very mindless you know, it's a mindless way of well, being. and a lot of times too. Like I was dyslexic, and so I had teachers. Oh, you know, you'll never amount to anything. Right. Blah blah. Right. And I was super. Um, I I used to love school, but I I couldn't do. I had to figure out how I learned. Yeah. And I I had a therapist tell me, and this was about a whole nother thing. But she said you need a corrective experience, and mm-hmm. it was so beautiful because when I got, I'm working on my second masses, but when I got my first one, yeah, I felt that. like you know, I'm very you know religious person and I felt like God saying, you know, we're not just going to fix this. Yeah. We're going to redo it. Yeah. Right, right. You know what I mean? And so it was yeah. just this most beautiful thing. And yeah. so in in recovery, those things will happen. Those things will come. They talk yeah. about the promises and those things will happen. You yeah, know? absolutely. No, absolutely. Congratulations on all that. It's amazing. Yeah. I had a teacher tell me I wasn't good in math. And I re- write about this in my book, <laughs> The Rewired Life, about yeah. you know, um, and, you know, and, and just the narratives around, you know, she said, stick to history, stick to art, stick to, you know, writing. And, and I probably was stronger in that. I know I was. But again, yeah. to tell me not to try, really. And so I didn't yeah. try. I remember I skipped my whole SATs. I literally skipped all the math because I didn't try. And and now running yeah. a business myself, I'm fine. <laughs> like, like I get it. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. do it. Um, you know, so don't listen to anyone out there that tell anyone old narratives, you know, that you, you have, we got to change. But anyway. Yeah. Back to the self-care tools. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Physical self-care movement. You know, I'd like to call it movement because it's, it's more than just obviously exercise, diet, weight. I, you know, that's, that's, if that's important to you, that's fine too. But it's more about honoring your body, your temple, the thing that takes you through this life. And, And a lot of us have a very complicated relationship with our bodies. And oh Lord, I think a lot of us go through periods of uh, dislike and and frustration. And, you know, so again, it's about movement and really having a practice of stretching or walking or, you know, if it's running, like for me, I found running now, I just walk because it's easier on my body, but I do it non-negotiable. So creating non-negotiables to Jody around Mm -hmm. these self-care practices, gratitude, you know, if we want to talk about our spiritual lives and spiritual self-care, creating a gratitude practice, mm-hmm. understanding your value system and writing down what, what you do value, like top top five values, and then use those values as a North Star to kind of live by, you know, um, and harmony and balance when it comes to spiritual practice. All of that really can be um, achieved if we create like a mindfulness practice around gratitude. So every day reflecting on that, um, emotional self-care, you know, again, being honest with yourself and others and, you know, just kind of having a conversation, like no more self-betrayal, you know, even, even being sober, like don't, don't, don't do things that feel like you're betraying yourself, you know? Um, You know, I think one of the biggest things is um, a routine, which is, you know, in terms of self-care is just trying to 
not everyone has to be so rigid if you if you're someone that's like i'm not good at routines that's fine but like at least go to bed at the same time try to you know eat maybe dinner at the same time put yourself on a routine a little bit and see how that feels it may feel a little bit better you know than being all over the place um and if not that's fine too but at least try that in some in some ways um and I mean, this is all for good for early on in sobriety. Um, wow. And time management, I think, has been very helpful in self in terms of self care. Of like, you know, writing down my priorities of the day, like not having ten things to do, but one or two things, mm-hmm. one or two things a day I want to get to. And if those are done, great. You know, like I pat myself on the back, a congratulations, you did it. And that could be my laundry, it could be paying a bill. But again, getting organized. I have a a, a planner I use. I've been using it ever since I got sober 15 years and not the same one. I get a new one mm-hmm. every year, but um, it's, it's, I write down all my sessions I have during the day. I, I write down when I'm going to go walk. I write down if I have an appointment with you today, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I try to keep myself organized as best yeah. I can. My life has gotten more complicated because I have two little kids and, you know, I have a partner or my husband and he has his life. So, we, you know, it's, it's more to juggle, but again, I think it helps a lot. And, Healthy solitude, lastly, is just really important. Is trying to carve out some time for yourself to to hear your thoughts, to reflect on yourself and what you're feeling and your life and where you want to go. And having that time to be clear is super important because our lives be, become so noisy and we don't ever you know, take the time to be up by ourselves. So even if it's just 10 minutes a day and that's all you could do, set an intention that that's the, the healthy solitude time. Mm, I love all those tips. That's so great. And then you build up like what they call sober equity or whatever. I think that's how they put it, where it's like, like I look back and, and I think, you know, there is no way I could operate at the way I'm operating now if I was still drinking, like, 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 and so it just becomes to where you're now you're this totally different person. You wouldn't even have room for that crazy in your life. But I love what you said about gratitude, because I feel like gratitude saved my life. Like I was kind of a negative. My joke is the glass, the glass wasn't just half empty. There just wasn't nothing in it. (laughs) Like it was just empty, you know? And so that really rewired my brain. And, and it, so what happens is it, it starts to become natural. It's a whole neuron thing. And, you know, I'm not a brain scientist, but what happens is the more you practice it, when I find myself getting triggered into Mm -hmm. the self-pity, the negative, the, I don't have any choices, the powerlessness, you know, that's when pretty soon I automatically flip back mm-hmm. and I and I practice gratitude a and maybe you can talk a little about a bit about this too but also looking at what's really true because I think we you know with as as, a, as people struggling with addiction to the addicted mind we tend to have this this disastrous like we look at things that aren't true or we get triggered maybe from something that happened that were that when we were five mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's like, okay, so it was true then, but it's not true today. And really just looking at, at um, you know, not only the gratitude, but but the truth in the moment. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're talking about narratives. I do this exercise with people at treatment centers. This has been very helpful for a lot of people, I think, and, and myself included, is to write down your narratives around what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man religion, mm-hmm. communication, sex, love, relationships, money, um, you know, let's start there. Education, let's let's add that too. And you write all that down and then you say to yourself, 
what 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 was what was it like growing up for me and what did i what did i think about relationships well for me my parents divorced when i was 7 years old my dad was 25 when he had me right so he was a young guy when they divorced he was only 32 years old right so he was he's and he's a drinker and he's running around and he's you know mm-hmm. behaviors that i saw um and, and again, like so, what it was to be a man? Well, the the man in my the, the man, the one man in my life who I adored and loved, I you know looked at his behaviors and I thought, well, that's the way all men act. I mean, it's right. not that he even had to tell me that. It's just we watch things and observe things, and we and we hmm. interpret things when we're children. So it's like, and I and I looked at my parents fighting all the time before they divorced, all the time, and hearing them at night fighting and hiding in my hmm. bedroom, scared, and you know the, that those experiences. I thought, oh well, you, people just fight a lot in relationships. You know, I didn't. You don't have a lot to go by when you're young. So again, these narratives start taking place at a very young age we don't even realize it so by the time we're in our own relationships we may act out we may do things where we think you know maybe that we don't like it but they feel familiar to us I didn't trust men for a very long time I you know had to like I had to work through a lot of narratives myself that I realized were created at a young age. And I now see how some of them were created by doing an exercise like this. Um, or people grew up, like I've had clients that men that will say, well, when I was a boy, I was taught, don't show emotion, don't cry, like get get yeah. your get get it together. Like, you know, be a man. I would always hear, be a man, be a man. What does mm-hmm. that mean, be a man? You know, oh, that means being strong. You know, that means never having a problem. Okay. So we go through these kind of exercises to explore what our narratives were about all this. Sometimes if you were taught not to have sex and you're going to be bad if you have sex, and blah, 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 then you have all these shame-based narratives around that. These things really impact us. Yeah, that's so true. And I, when you, you were talking about the fighting and the things like that, I, I related that as well. I, I would wake up to it a lot of times, things breaking and crashing and, you know, the screaming. And, and yeah. one of the things that I realized later, and that's where the triggers came in, was that it was never talked about. So yeah. so I was like five, and I'd be like, Mommy, what's going on? Oh, we're having a discussion. Right. And my five-year-old brain, you know, I don't know what that means. I, I, it just seems like that's not really the truth. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't trust myself. Yeah. And no one was ever there to like say it's okay. So this is so common, I think, in recovery, where then you grow up and you're like, no one can help me. Mm-hmm. I'm on my own. And if I do reach out for help, no one will be there anyway. And yeah. so those were triggers for me that I didn't understand. Like I tell this story sometimes where I had this radio show and I had all these therapists on. We did a little therapy thing. And yeah. and then I went after my brother died of his addiction, sadly. And and I, I decided to get therapy and, and um, I called a couple of therapists and they really couldn't help me. And all of a sudden I was triggered back to when I was five and no one could help me and I'm yeah. crying and I'm just sobbing. Yeah. But I knew enough to know, oh my gosh, I'm being triggered because I have like eight therapists on speed dial. Like I could just call them and say, hey, could you recommend somebody? But I, could, I understood and then I just grieved it. Like I okay, grieved yeah. that thing yeah. and then I knew. Like yeah. I knew what was happening. And so, which kind yeah. of brings me to triggers, you know, I think that's that's an important part of the recovery is just sort of recognizing those triggers. How do you help people with that? Well, I think like you just said, having the awareness that we have triggers is good. So then when you have like a strong emotional reaction, mm-hmm. we have to 
I think what you just said too is really important. Everyone hears this is that you have to stop, pause. Okay, what was that, Erica? What was that, Jody? Say this to yourself. You know, what was that? What was that? You know, why'd you get so emotional? And it's okay to be emotional. We have to, you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a great teacher who, who wrote a book called You Are Here. He says, we have to hug, like imagine hugging your sadness. Imagine hugging that mm. that narrative, Jody, that triggered you of like, you know, no one can help me. Or like I had one like, you know, I remember when I went to treatment, someone said to me, I was telling about my life kind of up to that point, And someone said, that must have been so hard for you. And I started crying and I was like, no one ever said that to me. And like no yeah. one ever validated yeah. that I had a lot of emotional experiences when I was young and my no, my parents were doing the best they could and I'm, I'm very close to them. I don't blame them, but no one ever right, checked exactly. in with me about it. No one ever asked me, is this divorce painful for you? Is Are you sad over this? It was just like, this is what's happening. Put your boots on and smile. Yeah. And we're going. That's it. Like, it's just we, that generation. That's just how well, they, yeah. they can even, you know, for me, it was in the 70s. It was like there just wasn't yeah. the stuff we have today. And it, it right. just, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but I remember the first time someone said that to me, like, that must have been hard. I know. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop crying for like 20 minutes and I never cried like that. And I was like, what yeah. was that that triggered that? Right. You know, and it was because maybe we didn't ever hear those things before. So I think it's good for people to write down when they're triggered or, you know, I remember my husband when we, after we got married, we were kind of on our honeymoon and we were joking, walking and he said something about divorce and, and I started crying and I was like, you know, that word just bothers me and we just got, you know, and it's like, why does it bother me? Well, because it was so impactful in my life. And so again, it's all these little things that, or it could be big things like, um, you know, someone raises their voice at you and that's something you were, you know, you didn't like when you were younger and you have to correct it and set a boundary with somebody i've had to set boundaries with people like if you raise your voice to me i will walk out of the room you can speak to me calmly or else i won't i will not be in this relationship like period like i'm not going to be yelled at you know like that triggers me and and i don't want to feel threatened and i don't want to feel uncomfortable and if i do i will leave because i it's life or death i am not going to go drink again over something like this i will not tolerate or have this behavior around me anymore you know Mm -hmm. and you have to be very clear that these are the things that are unacceptable and you know it's like if someone doesn't like that that's fine and if someone has a problem and they you really love them and you could say I'll work with you on this but I'm letting you know I'm going to walk out of the room every time you scream at me yeah yeah. And, you know, all this stuff takes time it and takes we time. screw up a lot. So I always yeah. like to, to point out that because yeah. uh, I have like I haven't relapsed on drugs or alcohol, but a lot of people do. And I just like to say that's OK. I didn't yeah. used to think it was OK. Like I'd be like, I can't work with you. You're just not ready. You know, I don't yeah. look at it that way anymore because it's like when we relapse, it's like, what can we learn through it? Yeah, and then okay. I have a lot of what I call like emotional relapses. So if you're trying to set a boundary, let's say with your mom <laughs> yeah. and you screw up eight times, like it's OK. It's just oh, yeah. it's it, right. I mean, these things, it's so oh, boundaries with families. Curve. It's, yeah, it's so hard, Erica. Like, it's, it's just like, so all this stuff we're talking about, it's not like, oh, pie in the sky, pink cloud. Like this took, for me, I'm still working on it today, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a never ending process. And so. No, it's never ending. And like, just like I said, that one boundary I made with my dad about the not screaming, that was like in my own life, actually. And mm-hmm. I remember even recently, you know, there's something came up and, I, you know, I, I'm not good at always holding boundaries. Sometimes I yeah. freeze or, you know, we all go through different stages when we feel stronger, mm-hmm. we or we feel like we missed, missed the mark and we let somebody 
kind of take advantage of us. That's okay too. We're, we're always learning. It, this is, it's just staying compassionate for yourself. Yeah. It's just identifying ideally like how you want to feel. And if someone makes you feel differently, then let's figure out a solution to that, you know? Yeah. And support is huge. Talk to me about that. I mean, I think, I think we, I forget, I think it was Dr. Henry Cloud or one of the therapists is like, you can't have boundaries if you don't have any healthy people to lean on, right? I mean, yeah. if, if it's just you alone and you're trying to set all these boundaries, but there's no healthy, <clears throat> you know, sideline around you, I mean, you just can't do it. Like as much yeah. as like I'm a trained extrovert, but I'm 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 really more of an introvert. And yeah. sometimes I don't like the fact that I need to have people, but we just we do. It's how we're wired. I agree. I know. I mean, <laughs> you know. Too. Yeah. Luckily, I have a big family that that is I'm very close with. So I think support is good like that. If you don't have a family, you know, two friends are amazing, and yeah, communities are amazing. Like you know, these wellness sobriety communities. I mean. A couple people have now started rewired Zoom meetings online and it's their oh, support cool. group. So if you don't want to go to a 12 step meeting and that's not for you or you're not into, you know, a certain whatever, uh, you know, community that yeah. you've been introduced to and you want something alternative, people are based on the rewired program. I have a free um manual, a community meeting manual you could download on my website and people could start their own meetings wherever you are, whether you're with three friends or whether you're doing a, a big Zoom community meeting, which now people have started. So there's Zoom meetings on Mondays and Fridays, all the infos on my website. Um, and I don't run them. Other people run them that mm -hmm. have been familiar with my work and it's a great alternative. So I think that kind of community is great. You know, I'm just starting a little wellness center in my area in LA and Westlake Village, California with another woman friend of mine. And she, we were doing it kind of for women in general, mm -hmm. um, just so we could have community and friendship. And we're going to do like a little yoga and we're going to do kind of an open circle talk. And it's just a way to gather because I've felt very lonely these past couple of years and, and, yeah. COVID and working from home. And I think a lot of us do. So again, I'm trying like you, I'm, I really do like being by myself, but I'm trying because I know I want that too. I crave that too, yeah. the connection. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting out there in my community. So anybody that's out there too, like, you know, team up with one person and try and start a little meeting or a gathering or a coffee every morning and invite people to come. And, you know, it's like, we kind of have to take one extra step towards action to do that. And I you know it's hard for some people, but it really, it pays off and we really all feel so much better when we could relate to others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many different paths to sobriety and mm -hmm. recovery as well. Yes. You yes. know, we do opioid treatment, we do yeah. methadone, you know, right. that's works for some people, medical treatment. Um, yeah. Some people are abstinence. And I, like, I'm one of these people, I'm not in any camp, there's harm reduction, there's right. like, I, I feel like we can all be in the same camp. But unfortunately, it's not like that yet. Yeah. <laughs> people are just like, they're stuck on this one way or the highway. Yeah. Um, but then I think a lot of people are starting to understand we're all different. We all have different ways to recover. And that's super important. Mm -hmm. um, so I love what you're doing, Erica. I know you have to go. I, we could talk for another hour. Like, I, certainly. Know, I know. Um, <laughs> 
could, and we will hopefully. Yeah, but but just let people know uh, how they can get in touch with you, your books, your programs, um, all that stuff, and any kind of parting words mm. of advice for people mm. struggling that that yeah. you would have today. Thank you, Jody. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, my website is the best place to kind of find all my services. It's ericaspiegelman.com. It's just E R I C A S P I E G E L M A N dot com. Um, I, I created an online rewired educational program. It's a go at your own pace program. It's 10 modules. There's a v- videos I've taped kind of explaining each module. There's discussion questions, journal questions, a little assessments. Um, it's just a feel good, hopefully help you on your path to recovery program. You could do it your, you know, at night for 10 minutes. You could do it for an hour. Mm-hmm. It's on my website. Um, and it's there to help people. Um, it's also for treatment centers too. A couple of treatment centers have signed up for it, and they use it for their clients, which is something you know we could talk about further. You know, any centers cool. or programs yeah. that want to use it. Very, very, uh, very great. Like very good for like if you had an IOP or outpatient, or you just have clients that can't really don't have access to therapy, um, mm-hmm. and they want something so that they could go home at night and still like keep connected to this work. So that was, that's great. So a couple centers have signed up for that. So we, I have two tracks for that program. And then um, my books are all available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever, you know, books are sold. And yeah, I just do counseling day to day. So in a podcast, it's called Rewiring Your Life um, on all podcast platforms, uh, iTunes. And I do it with um, Marcia Stone. And she's she was the CEO of BRC Recovery Big Center in Austin, Texas. She's a mom. She's a lawyer. She's she's in recovery herself for many, many years. And uh, it's just a fun, you know, uh, podcast. We have a lot of experts on doctors and nutritionists and author. We had a great author on yesterday, the New York Times author. She's she does all mental health and she writes TV shows. So it's a fun. It's a great podcast, too. So we have lots going on. Cool. So yeah. check out Erica. That is awesome. Um, and, and, and I love that, like all the Zoom stuff and everything, because that's great, especially people in you know, like rural areas and stuff that, yeah. that, you know, struggle getting getting therapeutic things. So yeah. check it out. Go to our website. And Thank great you. to have you here. Thanks, thanks for sharing. Um, and friends, thanks again for listening. Please share this show on social media. Hit the you hit the share button and uh, you can listen through any of the apps that you may be listening through like iTunes or Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon, Audible, or of course, by clicking podcast right there on my website. It's jodystevens.org, J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S.org. This is Genuine Life Recovery. Thanks so much for being here, friends, and we will talk to you next time.